Hello, Marvelites! You are listening to a special This Week in Marvel Unlimited Reading Club episode of the show. I'm Ryan, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm C.B. Sobolski, Editor-in-Chief and X-Men fan. Yeah! Uh, so this one is our fifth TwimURC of the year, where we are focusing on different decades each episode every 40s, month. 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you're right! Yeah! The fifth! I do math! Yay! And uh, we're, we're doing this one about the 80s and... I think there was a, it was a no-brainer for yep. you and I, CB, to pick the X-Men. Yep. Um, and this is, these are the comics that were instrumental in the 70s and getting me in, involved in comics, which we touched on a little in the last episode. But the 80s is where it really, like, the X-Men came into more prominence, not for just myself, but for so many people, given the amazing depth that these stories took on and the art, level of artistic quality that Marvel invested in, the, in each issue. Yeah. So we're going to get into all the X, uncanny X-Men stuff in a second. But I, I wanted to ask you, CB, what do you think of when bringing up Marvel in the 80s? Marvel in the 80s to me was uh, just – it's where Marvel grew and my circle of friends grew because more people started getting into Marvel. Hmm. Uh, I think that's where the, the, the quote-unquote brand – and I hate to use that word because it wasn't really a brand back then. It was a comic company that was delving into other things. Yeah. Spider-Man and his amazing friends and some of the old TV shows from the 70s that were camp. But, you know, we were, we were you know, growing as a company in, in the efforts to, to promote the characters. And I just noticed more people, more people started reading comics – and talking about Marvel and knowing the characters, especially around like Halloween time, you would notice like hmm. when I was younger, I'd be the only kid like dressed as like certain characters. And then like in the 80s, it was like, oh, wait, there's more more people that are dressing as Marvel characters around yeah. there. So, you know, f for me, it was a period where I felt that I was on the cutting edge of something. I was in the know in a way, you know, like, oh, I was a, I was in Marvel before it was cool. Kind of thing. <laughs> I think there's a lot of that feeling that I've seen from some fans over the last couple of years as the movies have really blossomed and, and brought in a whole new group of fans. Um, and I think there's also a bunch of, you know, fans who are also like very welcoming and like supporting and being like, hey, you should read this. You should check this out. If you like this, you know, movie, this comic is great. So, you know, trying to build that is, is always important for us. You know, in the 80s for me was a decade where I was, you know, in elementary school, in middle school, and then in high school. And those mm -hmm. are three distinct periods of a person's life. Yeah. And when you go and look through the history of the X-Men books, especially Uncanny X-Men at that point, there are different time periods specifically <laughs> defined mostly by Claremont almost entirely by Claremont, yeah. which is a feat unto itself, but the different art levels and the different style, styles that came on during the three different kind of, if you break the decade down, is, is really crazy too. Yeah, yeah. And we'll get into that because that's a big part of why we wanted to do X-Men because we were really, you know, you specifically were like, we should focus on different artists yep. for the different books that we talk about. But I want to make a special mention of Dave Cockrum because he's not one of the artists of the four books that we chose. And to be clear, and we'll get into this, we chose 12 books to yep. start. Mm -hmm. We had to whittle it down to four just so we could make this manageable. We will talk about a bunch of those others. But Dave Cockrum, he was the artist on the all-new, all-different relaunch. Um, he designed and co-created many of everyone's favorite X-Men. And he's incredibly important to this whole discussion. He, of course, came back periodically yeah. through the mm -hmm. 80s to draw a whole bunch of great X-Men issues after Byrne and, and Terry Austin left. And, you know, he's he's sort of in the mix throughout a lot of, especially the early 80s. Yeah. And, you know, it was just, you know, when you look at what 
Dave did at the start of his X-Men run before the Claremont Burn stuff when you came after and then the different inkers and the guest stints that he did. It's amazing to watch how much his style grew too and how he was influenced by some of the forces around him of that decade as well. He maintained that classic Cockrum style that everybody knew and loved, but it was able to kind of up his game to, to, to run with the rest of the pack. Heck yeah. I mean, when you're drawing against the likes of, you know, John Byrne or John Romita Jr. or Barry Windsor Smith, yep. you got to step up. Yep. And he did. He did. He really did. Uh, so I just wanted to make sure we mentioned Dave in yep. here. Um, very, very important. Uh, so a companion piece to this is our 1980s episode of Marvel's The Pullist. Tucker and I are going to discuss an array of books. You can check that out on the Marvel's The Pullist feed. No X-Men up in there uh, because we are all X-Men all the time. Let's dive into our books. Our first one is Uncanny X-Men number 143. This came out December 16th, 1980. Uh, so right at the beginning of the decade, essentially. And this is the last Chris Claremont, John Byrne, Terry Austin issue. Yeah. Which is interesting, you know. You even said to me, I was like, well, maybe we'll do Days of Future Past. You're like, no, it's two on the nose, which I get. Like, that's the one everybody goes to. But this one is maybe my favorite X-Men story because, you know, I have a personal connection to it. I remember, you know, I think I've told this story before, but being uh, a kid, my mom and I, we went to the laundromat. There was a used bookstore next door to the laundromat. And I remember this issue reading and rereading this issue that I got from that laundromat. I got a bunch of Dark Phoenix Saga and other, like, from, like, one, you know, like, 115 to 140. Uh I was just, they would just have issues. And, you know, I would have, like, here's a quarter, here's a dollar, go get a comic book. And it was great. But this one, I connected with this one so much because it's, you know, we were young. And so Kitty Pride as that, uh, that POV character, you connect with her on such a deep level. Yeah, well, I completely agree with you on that. And it's just amazing how the timing was perfect. And that's something we do these days. You know, it was a Christmas-themed yep. issue as well. And uh, But, yeah, you know, the, the title of the book, this was, was so weird for me. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this issue, the title of the book is X-Men. Hmm. But it's almost a solo character book about Kitty. Yeah. And also, when an amazing creative team with a run is coming to an end, usually they do a special giant size wrap-up issue or something exciting with all the characters that sets up everything. And no, here, Chris and John and Terry chose to go for something quiet, and it didn't feel like a last issue at all. No. You know? yeah. I, don't, I don't even know if they knew that it was their last issue. I'm sure they did at that point. but It's in the letters page uh-huh. where Chris Claremont has a, like a, a text box at the top okay. of the page where he says, this is sad news. And, you know, I, like, it's not something I want to talk about, but I had a great collaboration with John and Terry. They're leaving the book, and he talks about how Dave Cockrum is going to be coming back, and there's going to be more stuff. But I don't know. You know, that might have been written – after they yeah. were like, this is it, we're done. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, who knows? It's fascinating stuff. So this one has Kitty fighting alone against the Nagari. Nagari? Nagari, I think. Nagari. Which is also super cool. In their last story, they call back to one of the earliest, yep. uh, you know, all new, all different stories. It was, I think, issue 96, uh, where, you know, Storm has to fight these, these demon monsters. Um, you get this flashback at the beginning of this issue, and one survives. And it's really cool, like this this demonic elder god race. I remember being terrified of this thing as a kid. And then from that cover, that sense of like spooky, you know, teen you know, horror. Yeah. 
No, so evocative. up until this point, it was like the Grinch was the scariest part of Christmas. <laughs> and then here comes this amazingly designed, like you said, horrific purple alien. Just like, whoa, what? Yeah. Uh, and Kitty's only 13 in this issue. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, just something about this kid versus the monster and how she nearly dies numerous times. Yep. Like there's that one part that I always remember where she phases just in time, but the, the monster's claws go through her. And yep. she's like, I felt that. I was always like, wow, that's so cool. It's so terrifying. Um, gorgeous artwork. There's a bunch of cutaways, yeah. uh, which I thought was so neat where you watch Kitty phasing through walls. You know, you're going horizontally and the monster is following her. Yeah. So and it just it's it it goes to show too how that creative team developed over the years. If you watch looked back at some of the early issues, what you know, what John and Terry and it would have been either Christy Shield or you know Glenis Ween who was calling mm-hmm. at this point, how they formed and they started playing off each other and they knew how to bring the best out of each other. The work on this one is just top notch in just the style, but also in the storytelling. Yeah, oh, man, it's great. It, it, this is like. Again, one of my favorite Marvel stories of all time. And it's, it's, I really love it. And it, it speaks to kind of like the 13 year old in Kitty, uh, because not only did she step up and kind of become an adult in her actions and prove that, you know, she's worthy for the X Men. And we'll get to that later in one of the mm-hmm. other issues we're going to talk about. But at the end of the story, when the X Men do come back and her parents are there, she's like, oh, you're back. Yay. Oh, I was scared. And then she's like, and on like an almost off panel, you know, comment to Storm, like, I destroyed the Blackbird, and I destroyed the hangar, and I destroyed the danger room. <laughs> Storm's just like, what? <laughs> and she's like, I would be mad at you if I wasn't so proud of you. Yeah, yeah. It's so good. Uh, all right. So from there, we are moving to issue 168, which came out January 11th, 1983. I would be turning two years old uh, two days after this issue came out. But this is Chris Claremont and Paul Smith. Yep. Paul Smith, you know, one of those incredible, I would almost say underrated artists, yep. I, you know, because now you don't see his work as much. But, man, he was... So good. And this is not his first issue of the X-Men. No. That would be, I think, 165, which came out just a couple months before. There was a brood story. Yeah, that cover with Storm as the brood queen. That was another horrifying alien cover. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But this is one of the all-time most classic Marvel moments. Yep. The opening splash page of this comic is one that has been not only talked about and discussed, but homaged how many times over and over. You yeah. Know? Professor Xavier is a jerk. Yep. It's such a fun moment. And it, as you get into this issue, particularly, it's like that, like, it's a very kitty heavy issue. It, it's really fun, like, watching her go through being young and trying to get her way, yep. but also feeling frustrated by the situation that she's in. Yeah. And, you know, it's just... Uh the issue itself shows the growth that Claremont brought to Kitty over that two and a half, three year period from when we, you know, she debuted and when we saw her on her own in the mansion in the issue we just talked about previously, being kind of demoted down from the X Men and the, the reactions that she had and it, the the emotions that she had as a young teenager to that rejection were so real at that point i mean yeah. he was it was just i remember reading it coming out and you could, you could feel like the neglect and you know being left out of certain things and wanting to be with your friends and the disrespect that you feel when an adult makes a decision i mean this was what i would say you know the x-men is the world outside your window this was real world stuff these were emotions that she was chris was writing through her 
through Kitty that reflected so powerfully on myself and so many other young teenagers, you know, reading these books when we were growing up. Yeah. Uh, you, Professor X, he wasn't around for, you know, a large chunk of time. So he comes in and you, you can't help but feel like connect with the way she feels because yeah. he's like, oh, yeah, no, you're a child. You're going to go down there. Well, dude, you are turning children into, you know, a, a force. For years, you know, you got to respect her. This is what, like three months after New Mutants started? It's it's like really early in New Mutants at the same time. But it it really made sense, too, given that connectivity, because the New Mutants came out and a lot of people were saying, like, oh, why wouldn't Kitty Pryde be on that team? And, you know, there was the the foresight that that shared universe where they could play off the themes of both books. And she was referencing the characters in that book, thinking she was so much better than them. (laughs) <laughs> Even though she was the same age as them, yeah. given experience. You know? Totally. And there was a, a funny thing in this issue and, you know, reading through it uh, and a couple things. You know, one is it's it's Chris. Chris Claremont never forgets. And, you know, and you, you saw that in the previous issue where he went back to the old stories with Nagari. And here he went back to so many previous stories, new and old. But he always was setting something up in every issue. So Chris was the master of not only pulling from the past, but setting up plot lines for the future as he built this x-men narrative yeah i mean you think about so he started what like 76 77 somewhere mm-hmm. in there mm-hmm. 75 and goes until 91 yeah 91, and, 92 yeah yeah and that whole run is him just putting pieces together like mm-hmm. this giant tapestry of x-men stories and yeah most of this issue is just interactions character building drama romance the long-term plot stuff yeah. Like, I would love to know, because this is the first appearance of Madeline Pryor. Yes, that's which is, I was, one of the things I wanted to bring yeah. up in this issue. And that, to me, is incredible, because that burn of Madeline goes through, uh, like, into the 240s. You know, that's when Inferno is. Yeah. Uh, so you're looking at years yeah. of building up. Who and what Madeline Pryor is. I mean, I was there as a reader through the death of Jean Grey and through Scott's subsequent romances. Even the Lee Forster Lee stuff Forster, is yeah. in here. And when you got to that last panel in this issue, it was just like, what? You know? <laughs> yeah. I was just really, really just remember being so shocked at the time reading it. You know? Yeah. And it's, like, and it's so wonderful in terms of the art and the coloring on that last panel because you have Madeline and she's all bundled up, but the red hair, the green and the gold outfit, yep. everything, you're just like, what is happening? Yep. And there's there's one scene I always wanted to figure out who, and I'm just rereading it, I remembered, like, you look at Kitty's room and the posters and the things are in there and they draw certain things in there that we couldn't do now, <laughs> pop culture references. But there's a poster on her bedroom wall of a guy with, you know, you think he was a movie star or an actor or something. It could have been Burt Reynolds or whoever back in the day. But I look at it now, having been through what we've been through over the last year with a lot of memorials for Stan and when pictures of Stan when he was younger. And I swear that it's a poster of a young Stan Lee on her bedroom wall at some oh, point. That- I would love that. That's great. This also is the issue in which Lockheed joins the team because yep. uh, he had sort of like came back with them from their brood adventure. Lockheed, so important. And, you know, I, I love Lockheed so much. Oh, and, and just, you know, it's it's not his first, like I said, not his first appearance. It's, no. his, it's when he came to Earth and he's on the team. And, again, I love Lockheed too. Um, and he's played such a major role in the X-Men books over the year. And he's not a throwaway character because – I will say that nobody draws 
Kitty or Lockheed as well as Paul Smith. I mean, that's a bold statement, I know, but I, I truly do believe that. And the way that he can bring Lockheed to life, a character doesn't talk, just make him emote with the smoke and the face and the tail and the body language is incredible. He folds his arms and yeah. he like spits a little yep. bit of smoke and he's just like, you know, the and the, the tiny, every once in a while I'll be like, he'll like say a, a, like one phrase word that's yep. just because he, un, like his communication is really strong. Ugh. Lockheed's incredible. And this one, when he comes out and it's the burp, you know, and you can just tell <laughs> he's like satisfied. He looks like, like a cat. Exactly. When, so good. when my cat walks out of the kitchen sometimes, he just looks <laughs> up and I'm like, that's awesome. It's Lockheed. <laughs> so great. Uh, we have to talk about more Lockheed in our next issue, which is Uncanny X Men number 181, February 7th, 1984. This one, uh, we chose this one as a our John Romita Jr. issue. We had another one that we'll, we'll talk about a little bit later as a possibility, but there's yeah. Claremont, Romita Jr. In just like, like incredibly uh, resonant issue for so many of us, Young Dragons in Love. Young Dragons in Love. And, you know, this issue is a weird one, too, because so many of us remember it so fondly. Uh, but it's a weird issue because the X-Men pop into it out of nowhere, out of Secret Wars. Yeah. So it's, a, it's just like an epilogue to Secret Wars. But the way that they wrote it still made perfect sense. It's like we always talk about every comic should be new reader friendly. And here, this is a perfect example because the X-Men were just away for so long. But through the dialogue and through the art, they're able to make the pieces connection and make it seamless. Yeah. And that's the really incredible part because the previous issue, the very end of it, because I had to go back and check and see how they couched it. The end of the issue is them going into Central Park, into the big, you know, the teleporter that the Beyonder has. So they go at the end of the last issue, and then they pop out after Secret Wars at the beginning of this issue. Secret Wars is 12 issues, issues long. long. Yep. It took however many months that took. Yep. Not 12, probably a bit more. So not only did they make it new reader friendly, they also made it so... It was really like, I have to read Secret yeah. Wars mm -hmm. because they're like, what happened with Colossus? Yeah. Where did this other dragon come from? Uh, what's going on with Scott Summers? Why isn't he with? Yeah. Like, there's mm -hmm. a whole bunch of questions that they tease you with. And I think this is something that probably Shooter had everybody do, right? Yeah. Um, setting up like, we got to get people to read Secret Wars. So this is what you're going to do. And it's so effective. And you have to remember, too, these were days back when people were buying comics without knowing what was in them back before the internet. So it didn't matter because you were in for the ride on both series. Yeah. Now we're so concerned about, no, we can't publish this issue till we wrap this miniseries. You know, like with Civil War, like how we delayed a lot of books because the, the, the last issue was a little late. We didn't want to spoil Civil War for everybody because the, the books post that were already done and already going to pick up after that. Yeah. So it's the, the, the publishing styles and the, the editorial plans that they had back then were so different than what we do now. Yeah. Uh, I want to point out the cover because particularly that is like I wish so, – I wonder who owned that original art. I don't know. It's probably Dave Mandel. I was going to say Dave Mandel. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, and so for the cover, you know it's going to be special. You have casual Xavier in the corner box leaning. Then you have the logo, which is a rarity, somewhat obscured because the characters are lounging and connecting and like they are – interacting with the logo yep. and it's so like it's like a warm hug yeah brings you in and of course you have lockheed and this giant dragon yeah like what the hell is going on mm -hmm. uh we get a wonderful godzilla cameo yes. in here i gotta point that out <laughs> uh a little mention and like and i love this little factoid of the kids in japan having their monster little handbooks yeah so good 
yeah. and like, oh, the X Men are in here too, and they're just like, and there's that, that casual throw, like, oh, they're used to dealing with this kind of stuff. God, they're <laughs> they're they're such such a great reactive force in dealing with monsters. Yeah, it's like, um, but again, this issue, John Junior, you know, yeah, and you know, he was relatively new to the X Men at this point. No. How long had he been doing comics in general? Couldn't have been that long. A couple of years, maybe. Maybe, yep. And yeah. then you know, Paul Smith had been on. Th- through what one seventy one seventy five was the last of the Fe- Dark Phoenix. Jeez, so it wasn't long after mm. you know Paul Smith was there. So those are big shoes to fill too. Yeah, and it just it just he picked it up seamlessly. Yeah, you know? I mean Johnny is even he's you know similar to George Perez, right? Yeah. The way we were talking about George last issue last episode, where even at that young age he was fully you could see everything yeah. that he was thinking of doing the way. John draws faces and expressions, mm-hmm. especially eyes. I love the way John draws eyes or the way he handles energy. You know, some people go to the Kirby Crackle type thing. Yeah. John has his own way of depicting energy and the way it's it, it envelops somebody. Yeah. And it's like I it, it is just John Romita Jr.'s way of doing it. Yeah, and so. I, I love his Colossus. I mean, you saw Colossus jump into action a few times in this in this issue and just the way he handles the bulk of Colossus but makes him move so quickly. Yeah. You know, it's like it's it's Johnny's just a master at that. Yeah. Uh we we have them in Japan. Cyclops is missing. Cyclops boop he yeah. drops in on Tahiti. Yeah. Uh with Madeline. They you know like you, the thing about also reading these here is my brain remembering bits and pieces yeah. and like putting the connective tissue together mm-hmm. of the issues that we're, we're not specifically talking about. It's, you know, the Madeline stuff as that builds and builds and what's going on with her and, you know, her feelings and you're dealing with that. You know, and, and you're struggling with the, but he loved Jean. She looks like Jean. And there was nothing sinister about the relationship here either. They'd only been married a few issues. Nothing at this sinister. Point. Oh, I didn't. Oh, well done. I did pun not intended, yeah. but now intended. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, the issue is part kaiju story. I love the way they set it up, too, where some of those shots look like an old you know, Japanese kaiju movie with the tanks on the bridges mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the big monster tearing up the city. Uh, it's, it's, you know, then you've got the disaster movie parts with what's going on. There's just tons, again, drama, relationship stuff. And there's a bunch of heartbreaking things in here because uh, specifically of Lockheed. So we know Lockheed comes back from Secret Wars. He's got this other dragon, which uh, they say they named it Puff, but never referenced Puff in in here. In here. It might've been in Secret Wars. Um, but he spurns this other dragon to protect the world. Like Lockheed being this amazing hero to save Japan. Yeah. And then the pint sized purple hero. Yeah. Uh, and then the, the other dragon just disappears. disappears. It's, it's, it's like, what happened? I wanted so much more out of that. Thankfully she'd show up years later, most recently in X-Men gold number 30, where we see that Lockheed and the dragon have little dragon babies. Yeah. This is my plea to you, CB. Uh-oh. I want something with Lockheed and his family. I think that would be an adorable story. We're talking about new titles at, for 2019 at the editorial meeting later today. Maybe I'll uh, pop that on the agenda. Maybe. Just throw it out there. <laughs> Say, hey, people love cute animals. Yeah. You give us a cute family story about 
Young Dragons in Love, mm-hmm. that would sell. But, you know, there were when you think about it, there were actually three love stories that were running through this issue because there was the Lockheed and quote-unquote Puff story. There was the return of Cyclops to Madeline. But this was also the first time we went back to Japan with Mariko after she spurned Wolverine, you know, about yeah. a year, less than a year earlier on yeah. this. And, again, one of the other classic it, it was on X, our initial X-Men list. Story. Yeah, hey, Elf, don't forget the beer with the, <laughs> the wedding invitation, <laughs> yep. you know? Yeah. But, you know, that's what this is. The, and Wolverine even mentions that, like, oh, Japan, I yeah, didn't want to ever have to come back here. You know? And, you know, I love he just goes right into, like, speaking Japanese, talking to the people. Uh, Mariko is sort of like, oh, my love, we can never be together. I was like, why not? Yeah, I know. I got so angry at Mastermind after reading the other issue because he's just – he shows back up and he messes with this wonderful love story. Yep. He'll get his. And the the last thing about this issue that was yeah. so key, I remember, was Professor Xavier can walk again. Yeah. And you saw that happen in Secret Wars after the fact. He came back here. He was like, "Oh my god!" You know? Oh, that right. That wasn't before because no. I, I I kept bouncing between issues as I was yeah. getting ready mm-hmm. for this one. And then I, there's the one where he's playing basketball. Yes. And mm-hmm. I was reading that one and I was like. You're terrible at basketball. Mm-hmm. It's great. Uh, there's also the first appearance of Amiko, who would be a, a huge part of a lot of Wolverine stories, especially in a solo book. Yep. Uh, all right. Last of the main issues that we're talking about here is Uncanny X-Men 186. That's July 10th, 1984. Chris Claremont, Barry Windsor-Smith, the first of the life-death stories. A life special death. double-sized issue notes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's life-death, a love story. Yep. There's a second one, and... I've I've read something about he wanted to do a third and it wasn't it didn't make the cut. Yeah. But regardless, this one, yes, double size, mostly focused on Storm with a bit of Rogue and Professor Xavier. And you know, reading it now, we we have Rogue is such a an important part of yeah. our stories, right? Like Rogue is she's Rogue. Yeah. There she's like Still only a couple of years into being an X-Man. You yeah. Know, like two, two, three Two years. years. 171 was her first issue. So this would have been 25 yeah. issues later. Yeah. yeah. So, so mm-hmm. no, oh, no, 14 issues later. Six, 15. Oh, my math is bad today. 186. 171 to 186. Yeah. 15 issues yeah. later. Mm-hmm. So, you know, she's, she's still trying to like prove herself to everybody and still being a part of things. And, but she's so great. And like yeah. the way Barry draws her is like, in, there's a scene in the, um, in the hotel room where she comes busting through the oh, wall. So good. Man, Barry Windsor Smith is a, is one of those artists, like he comes in during this run of X-Men, he does maybe five issues. Possibly, yeah. Something like that. Everyone is a banger, as the yep. kids say. He does Weapon X and so many other things, but man, this one here, when you're in what is it, Eagle Plaza? Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh Forge's penthouse. Five story penthouse. Yeah. <laughs> Which Great. I want one of those. Yeah. Uh, and it's, he's like built this holographic, the entire like penthouse can be churned into a holographic projection. Oh. And so when it's just clear and Barry has to play with the space in such a way where he's putting furniture in certain places that's not, it doesn't look like it's sitting on anything. Just the, the technical ability to be able to do that is Uncanny. Oh, I like that. Yes. The technical ability to not only draw it, but to have imagined it in the first place. Yeah. And this is without the use of computers, without the use of SketchUp or AutoCAD or any of those programs. I mean, he was literally coming out on his drawing board from his hand 
onto the page and drawing the perspective on the levels and the different floor spaces and you know when she falls when there's this uh, you know and is running from forge in, the, in that scene yeah. just, he had it all mapped out in his head and it was yeah. like talk about futurist yeah yeah exactly yeah he was wildly ahead of his time uh, you got the dire wraiths in here, yeah. which was cool. How they were, you know, spreading out through different comics. They had come in from uh, a sp- very specific book. And uh, what is interesting, I forgot that the story behind them is that they are sort of like we have the Inhumans, and they're an offshoot of the Kree. The dire wraiths are like the deviant offshoot of the Skrulls. Mm-hmm. So it's really fascinating stuff. But they're so gross. I remember hating them as a kid yeah, with those tongues oh, and it was just like yeah nasty oh. and they look incredible here and when like there's that one scene where the dire wraith pops the guy in the car yep. and he like ex- like sque- you know like squeezes out all his humans yep. his human business oh it's terrifying yeah, and the, the thing about this issue was and you know it's X-Men has always spoken to people on different levels. You know, they were the outsiders. They were feared and hated. You know, the, the mutants provided a metaphor for so many different people, uh, you know, depending on where they were at that time in their life. And you read this, you know, back from the early 80s and kind of the uh, the mutant metaphor that, that Forge and Storm were talking about and having, you know, been quote-unquote cured of her her uh, mutantdom and, you know, is, could she find peace in that or is there part of her that's going to be always missing and would she want those powers back? It's so relevant even today when you go through and you reread it 30 years later when, at a different time in your life. It speaks to you just like it did back then but on a different level now, you know, and it's just that's the beauty of, of what Chris and Barry did here. They did create a timeless X-Men story. Yeah, it, it timeless is, is kind of the perfect word here. Yep. Uh, it, you know, the stuff that they deal with and that she goes through because she'd just been depowered. Uh, you know, and, and I was like, oh, this must have happened a couple of issues before. It is literally the last couple of pages of the previous issue. There's no slowing down. and But then, you like, the way it opens up and, and handles this story and really difficult subject matter, all of Forge's, you know, feelings about Vietnam and yep. dealing with that and his identity. There's so much here, so much deep emotional and psychological connection fallout for each of them in their own lives it's it is really incredible work so as i mentioned there's a follow-up life death 2 that's in uncanny x-men number 198 it looks it feels it's a very different story it is storm sort of still struggling with identity and who she is and who she will be but it's a really interesting spiritual journey uh great issue as well if you want to check that out yep agreed all right so those are the four main ones but as i said we had picked like my my initial list was like twelve. Yep. Uh, so what else were we thinking of? One fifty nine, which came out in eighty two. That's uh, Chris Claremont and Bill Sienkiewicz. Yeah. Which I I fully read this one, and it's the Dracula issue mm-hmm. where Dracula comes and he attacks Storm. Um, it's a really you know kind of cool little creepy wonderful issue, but Bill's art. Does almost in one panel does it look like the Bill Sienkiewicz we think of? Yep. Mm-hmm. The rest of it looks like Neil Adams. Yeah. And I don't even, again, as a longtime reader, I, I I remember when Bill came on to New Mutants and it was such a distinct style. I was like, who is this new artist? And I didn't, we didn't have the internet or anything back then. I had no clue that Bill had worked on the X-Men so many years before yeah. because it was such a, a different style. I mean, back then he was really part of Neil Adams' studio and working up in the bullpen every now and then and taking influence from some of the modern artists. But it was when he finally stepped out and I think and started his own studio in Connecticut and was able to really start growing and develop his own style that he came back. It was 
putting him on New Mutants. It was such a different artist. You wouldn't, and I didn't recognize it was the same guy. Yeah. Oh, so good. Uh, we looked at 173, which is Claremont and Paul Smith, yep. uh, Wolverine and Rogue in Japan. Uh, as I was reading this, I imagined Rogue's voice uh, as Blanche Devereaux from mm-hmm. The Golden Girls. And I think every listener, if you do that, it'll make your experience even better. <laughs> uh, but there's... So much good stuff in here. Like, this is the storm coming in with the mohawk. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is the first time she has that. And it's, man, it's beautiful. You think about how many classic beats we think about happen in X-Men books. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Every issue, there was something Every new issue. happening that we still talk about to this day. Yeah. 201 is Chris Claremont and Rick Leonardi. Yeah. You know, um, Leonardi didn't do a ton of X-Men work during this time, but this one is important because Baby Cable comes home. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have one of the softball games, which is Incredible has maybe my favorite sequence where Rogue gets the ball and she goes up. She connects with like there's an airplane flying by. She plants a kiss on the window and tells the guy like, "Don't worry, don't tell anybody about this." And she flies Sugar. back down. Yeah, <laughs> and comes back down. Yep. Uh, and then of course it's Cyclops versus Storm for leadership of oh, the X Men. That cover too. I, was, oh, I remember seeing that on the shelves. Like, oh my god, yeah. you know it's come to a head. Yeah. What's that happening? And there's like. The best panel of Cyclops walking away like, I can't believe I lost. <laughs> Whatever. Uh, 205 is another Claremont, Barry Windsor Smith issue. issue. This yep. is Wolverine versus Deathstrike. Uh, one of my favorite solo Wolverine book like issues, period. It's incredible. And, you know, we had a lot of these solo issues. And it seemed like more and more it was a lot of Wolverine-focused yeah. solo stuff because he ended up being one of the most breakout characters. And another classic cover that, it, you know, Using as an example to say, like, what jumps off the shelves. It's another one of those. It's a very simple cover, but just makes such an impact on you visually when you see it lined up, you know, with so many other comic book covers. Yeah. 213, which is Chris Claremont and Alan Davis. Uh, this is when Psylocke joins the team. It's a vicious Sabretooth story. Yep. Like, and, you know, Sabretooth has done a whole bunch of stuff, but he, I remember early, especially early on, he was terrifying. Yep. And he, like, these Wolverine Sabretooth fights just vicious and knock down dragon at one point he slashes wolverine and he like tastes it and it's one of the early times yeah, when we're just happened. like whoa yeah and this was you know the not the start of but one of the times that you know chris and alan have had so many different collaborations over the years mostly on x but it, i mean it's a creative pairing that still continues to this day it's every now and then they they'll get together and you know do something you know special and it's just like wow you know that's 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 Friendship in the form of, of uh, you know, an artistic collaboration. That's just great to see. Yeah. Uh, then we go to 242, which is Chris Claremont, Mark Silvestri. You know, and a lot of people talk about Jim Lee, Mark Silvestri, Rob Liefeld, a lot of, you know, these dynamic artists. Uh, and they, they say uh, of the X-Men of the 80s. Really, Mark Silvestri owned the end of the 80s for most of it. You know, like Jim comes in right at the end, does a bunch of amazing stuff. But Mark, he was on it for years. And he was incredible. 242 is the middle of Inferno. Uh, You've got X Factor there. It opens with Wolverine smooching Gene, which is right there. That is another one of those incredible. Something's different. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Storm taking control of the X Men, wild outfits. The best fashion choices. I don't know if you've looked at this, Triple P. 242, just look up Havoc and his outfit in 242. He's might be wearing less clothing than Madeline Pryor. Yeah, I think. It's possibly. great. Mm-hmm. And it's really, it's Madeline's full heel turn is this issue. Yeah. So 
great issue. It's it's bat- massive as well. Yeah, and the, the Sylvester issues for me remind me really of my high school years. We're talking about those different time periods across this decade, you know, because I still remember like the 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 level of detail and the the, the, the kind of like say the the, the the grit and the violence almost in a way had been, had been ramped up a bit. It was a time where, yeah. you know, later in that decade, we were unshackled a little bit, so to speak, from a storytelling standpoint. And just the, the, the cover of him eventually on the on the X. I remember I had that in my locker when I was wow. in high school. I actually, I actually ripped a co- cover off a what? comic book. CB. Yeah. Uh, that is actually one of the other possibles that we talked about for this issue. It's 251, Wolverine crucified on that X. Yeah. Literally, you know, uh, Pierce brings out a bunch of stakes and hammers them into Wolverine's hands and feet. And it is brutal. Yeah. That issue, it's mostly a fever dream that Wolverine has. Another solo Wolverine story. Mm-hmm. But it's so good that Wolverine, the X-Men in the Outback has got so many great yeah. things that just... Yeah, and when, when we were recently doing the promotional piece for the Jonathan Hickman uh, X-Men launch, Mark Brooks was doing that. And you know, I made sure that Gateway was in there because he was one of my favorite characters from back Heck in yeah. that run. Love know. Gateway. Uh, and then the final one that we're talking about, because we're talking about is a specific decade, is 256. And this is sort of like the middle end of 89. Chris Claremont, Jim Lee, Acts of Vengeance. Yep. Uh, and you, it's the introduction of Psylocke's new status quo. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just great Jim Lee art. Yep. Like just dynamic as hell. And, you know, you, you look back and Jim was so fully formed back then when he came onto the book. Yeah. And it was just, there's was, there was a reason that he is Jim Lee and the reason that people gravitated to, to him right from the start. And you could just see it there, you know, even when he was a younger artist. Yeah. Uh, so that is, uh, those are the X-Men books that we were looking at for this decade. As we've done in the previous episodes, I like to just paint a picture of what the beginning of the decade looked like, what sure. the end looked like. January 1980, we had Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, this is around 203. Avengers, Battlestar Galactica, Captain America, Conan the Barbarian, Crazy Magazine number 60, Defenders, Doctor Strange, Fantastic Four, Ghost Rider number 43, Howard the Duck number 4, the magazine, which has the Play Duck cover. Uh-huh. Uh, I think a lot of people might remember that one. Incredible Hulk, Iron Man, Machine Man, Marvel Premiere, Marvel, Team Up, Marvel 2 in 1, Master of Kung Fu. Micronauts, Power Man and Iron Fist, Rom, Savage She-Hulk, Savage Sword of Conan, Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commando, Shogun Warriors, which I love, Spectacular Spider-Man, Spider-Woman, Star Trek, Star Wars, Thor, What If, and X-Men. Great lineup. Unbelievable lineup. So good. Uh, A bunch of reprints at that time as well. Then you look, end of the decade, December 1989, you have The Nom, which is very, that's a great book, Uh, ALF. Alpha Flight, Amazing Spider-Man, 329, which is the Tri-Sentinel issue, Avengers, Avengers Spotlight, Avengers West Coast, Captain America 367, which is one of my all-time favorite comics. It's the Acts of Vengeance, Captain America issue, Magneto versus the Red Skull. I love it so <laughs> much. It's Magneto just destroying a Nazi. <sighs> Give me more of that. Anyway, uh, Classic X-Men and Conan Saga, both of which were reprints but had new material, which is so... But that was so great. Think how popular the X-Men were that they were – we weren't doing much many trade paperbacks back then. So we were reprinting classic X-Men stories and then, of course, putting new stuff in the back that complemented yeah. what went before. So it was actually pretty brilliant. Conan the Barbarian, Damage Control, Daredevil, Destroyer, which was a magazine. Mm-hmm. I don't know anything about it. I did some research on it, but the, that came I, out. I barely remember that. And yeah. Doctor Strange, Excalibur. This month included Excalibur Mojo Mayhem, yeah. the special, which is Claremont and Arthur Adams. Incredible. 
Fantastic Four, G.I. Joe, Heathcliff, Incredible Hulk, Iron Man, Mark Spector, Moon Knight, Marvel Age, Marvel Comics Presents, Marvel Fanfare, Rick Mason, The Agent, an original graphic novel, Thor, Cloak and Dagger, New Mutants, 86, one issue before Cable shows up, yeah. uh, Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., Nthman, The Ultimate Ninja, Police Academy, can't believe we had a Police Academy book, Punisher, Punisher Magazine, Punisher War Journal, Quasar, Savage Sword of Conan, Sensational She-Hulk, Sergio Aragones, Grew the Wanderer, Silver Surfer, uh, which was a prelude, still like a long burn prelude to Infinity Gauntlet. That was issue 34. Spectacular Spider-Man. Strike Force Moratori Electric Undertow with a very young Mark Bagley mm-hmm. on art. Wow, really? Yeah. I had no idea. All right. 1989. Um, Transformers, Uncanny X-Men, Web of Spider-Man, What If Number 10, Wolverine, Wolverine the Jungle Adventure, yeah. the OGN with art by Mike Mignola, which is tremendous, uh, and X-Factor. Also, we had the Epic line, the yep. uh, mm-hmm. you know the publishing line, which included Alien Legion, Critical Mass, Interface, Sleaze Brothers, and Akira, which oh, yeah. I one of my favorite things. I've collected all the Akira yep. Epic issues because the coloring on those, beautiful. you don't get them in a lot of the black and white volumes. Yep. Yep. Beautiful, mm-hmm. beautiful, beautiful stuff. So that is looking at the decade. Yep. You know, we've looked at the different decades and you see a lot of shift. But there was the most similarity between the start of the decade and the end of the decade. The line had just grown at that point. Yeah. Yeah. A little <laughs> eclectically at certain it, points, yes, too. For sure. Uh, so our Twim URC next month will be about the 90s. We still have to figure that out. So if you have any suggestions of stuff you want us to talk about, of course, you can hit up me, Agent M, and CB Sobolski using the hashtag Twim URC. Uh, and you guys came out for this one. We yeah. got a lot of tweets that came in. So I grabbed some of them. Andy Detloff says, Uncanny 168 is the greatest because it's the Professor Xavier is a jerk. Yep. Love that one. Talked about that earlier. Good yep. call, Andy. Ryan Dunlavy, comic creator, pal of ours, he says his is Uncanny X-Men 181. It was the first X-Men comic he ever bought and his gateway into being a lifelong comics reader. Uh, he'd binge read issues 171 through 180 at a sleepover, and Rogue's villain-turned-hero storyline hooked him deep when he was 12 years old. Never read anything like it before. It's incredible stuff. I really, It really was. Like you said, you had mentioned her journey earlier, and she's been on that path in so many different ways you know since then too yeah. chris n says the claremont run is one of the greatest team books ever it's hard to argue with that yeah and it, i mean for a, a run you know it's just there's certain certain writers artists and writers who are together for long runs you know but for a writer on a single run with so many different artists chris is one of the guys who's chris and then peter david on hulk i think are two of the the longest that we've done i mean stan and jack yeah stan and jack on ff dance lot you know but wow you know hard to beat pretty cool uh this was really great this made me happy this is exactly what i wanted cool no i'm glad this is some of the some of the best comics that in my opinion, we've ever published because it's where my heart is because I grew up with so much of this. And I'm I'm glad that this response was so great, too, because it means that, you know, these these comics, as so many Marvel comics do, spoke to so many people on different levels. Yeah. And there were so many responses. I couldn't include you all. So I apologize. Uh, if there's any specifically good ones, we'll pull them in for This Week in Marvel proper. But uh, we'll be back with another episode of The Reading Club next month. I'm Ryan. And I'm CB. And this is Marvel. Your universe. <laughs>